Well, I don't want you to lose the sentiment of what we were just affirming there, that because of God, because of your relationship with Him through Christ, no matter the circumstances in life, you can stand with Him in such a way that life does not shake you. I live in a world crisis. Every week, I'm facing multiple crises as I have the privilege of standing with and walking with some people through a variety of circumstances. And some of these stories are your stories, stories around financial crises and vocational and career crises and relational and family crises, health crises. Some of you have been walking through death and so on. How much does it shake you? How much is uh, Christ that solid rock upon which you stand? This is why what we're talking about right now is why there is a Christ following movement that's literally exploding around this world. Because people all over this world are finding out that life is not only in Christ, but the ability to stand through all the storms of life are in Christ. So we've been saying to you uh, recently what uh, missiologists have been discovering. Missiologists are those who study about what's going on religiously around the world. And uh, they tell us that right now, the growth of Christianity is just astronomical. That somewhere around 175,000 people every day are coming to follow Christ around the globe. And what we've also been highlighting for you is that a lot of that doesn't happen here. A lot of that's happening in the world that's non-white, non-Western, and Southern Hemisphere. These are in places that are mostly not friendly to Christianity. And in fact, many outright outlaw Christianity. So how in the world is it exploding in that kind of way? Because people are finding that Christ is the answer. And so if they're in some kind of repressive, oppressive country, they're finding that they can withstand that in a relationship with Christ. If they're in some kind of depressive, economically crisis kind of country, they can't make ends meet. Jesus is making that difference for them. And I'm just saying words to you that just really don't mean anything unless you've ever been there, seen some of it, and rubbed shoulders with some of these people. But for our cultural context and for how we are experiencing life, I want us to delve into this a little bit today about how we can move from kind of a fearful way of living to more of a fearless way of living. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3 in just a moment. If you have a Bible and you want to find that, Ephesians chapter 3. Before we get there, I had to just uh, reflect for a moment on a humorous story about Albert Einstein. Of course, most of us, when we say Einstein, that's synonymous with genius, with brilliance, right? Some of you may have heard the story. He used to take the train from New York to Princeton, New Jersey frequently, and on one occasion, he's on the train, and the uh, conductor guy is coming through the aisle collecting tickets and he's going through all of his pockets and his briefcase and so on. He can't find his ticket. And so uh, the conductor said, oh, Dr. Einstein, we know you. Uh, don't worry about it. I'm sure you had a ticket. Uh, next time I see you, I'm sure you'll, you'll have your ticket then. Don't worry about it. And so he continues on down the aisle collecting tickets from other passengers and he happens to glance back over his shoulder and now he sees 
Albert Einstein on all fours on the floor, looking all around under the seat, in the seat, still checking pockets, things like that. He comes back down. He says, Dr. Einstein, I said, I know who you are. I have confidence that you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. And Albert Einstein said, sir, I also know who I am. I just don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and I love that story because some of us struggle not only know who am I, but where in the world am I going? Have you been able to answer those questions? Do you know who you are? I'm talking about something way beyond your heritage and your history, your collective experiences. But I'm talking about a creative stamp upon your life by a creator. I'm talking about an eternal dream that God had when your life was formed and fashioned. Do you know who you are and where you're going? Well, Ephesians is a book that is addressed to believers who are discovering more and more about who they are in Christ and where Christ is taking their life. They're caught up in a Jesus-following movement. And so it's all about that identification and that destination and that journey that's a part of all that. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read a few verses with you. Uh, 13 to be exact and so if you can uh, endure that then we want to talk about it for a few minutes and then we'll be through okay Ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 this is the Apostle Paul writing to Christians in the city of Ephesus for this reason I Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now keep your Bible open because I'm going to continue to talk about each of these verses and unpack that a little bit for you. 
And let me begin right off the bat with verse 1, where he makes it clear he, he knows who he is. He knows where he's going. He's got that sense of identity and that sense of purpose. And he says, I'm a prisoner for Christ. Now, for those of you that don't uh, have some background with uh, the New Testament book of Ephesians, it's one of Paul's so-called prison epistles. It's one of the letters that he wrote to a church while he himself was in prison. And so he says, not only am I in prison, I'm a prisoner for Christ. See, I'm not here by accident in this jail. I'm here because he has, God has gospel purposes for me being in this jail cell. So that's who I am and that's what I'm about. Do you understand when we're talking about how do you become a person of fear that's caught up with, you know, how am I going to make it through this day and make it through this life and make it through the purposes and so on? You understand how powerful just that one point is to moving to a more fearless place. You see, in a sense, Paul can't lose. If Paul is delivered from prison, he gets to continue with the work of the gospel. If Paul is detained in prison, even for the rest of his life, he gets to continue with the gospel. If Paul is executed while in prison, his life will have been spent for the gospel. Do you see what a place of peace Paul is in? I can't lose. God's all over what's happening with me. None of it will be wasted. None of it will be lost. He will use my every circumstance for His purpose because I've yielded myself to His purposes. Now, he goes on to say, this is a mystery. Is this obvious to you? It's a mystery that God would be at work in such ways that nothing can thwart, nothing can undermine his redemptive saving work. And not only that, the mystery is so multidimensional, he says, it's not just for the Hebrew. It's not just for the chosen people. It's for the Gentile. And here's what God is beginning to unfold today, which for so many prior generations had not been clear that the good news, that the gospel, that God loves all people and is pursuing the hearts of all men so that he can save people that would come to him by faith in Christ, includes the Gentile. So that they can be fellow heirs. And notice the language. This isn't just forgiveness of your sins and uh, no longer an enemy of God, but reconciled to God so that God is not going to be punitive toward you. But this is an adoption thing. This is where you become a son or a daughter of a heavenly father. This is where he not only is at work in you today with purpose and meaning and significance, but for all eternity after this life, he has an inheritance for you which is way beyond the symbolic descriptive language that the Bible uses about heaven. It's way beyond that. Those are just little pictures, little snapshots, Polaroids of what is to come. He then says, all of this is afforded to me where I have a sense of identity in Christ. I have a sense of purpose that is uh, not only timely, but eternal. 
where I get to be a part of His movement in this world, all of this is afforded to me by grace. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. There's not something extraordinarily special about me that God would do this with me. It all comes by grace that I get to do this ministry. Now, let me unpack that word. Please uh, don't put it in parentheses or with a capital N to refer to a certain kind of clergy. The word just simply means servant. He's allowed me to serve him in this magnanimous way by his grace. I am the least worthy to be able to have this kind of privileged life. Privileged life in jail. Are are you following me? I am the least worthy for God to use my life, to touch my life, to fill my life, to release out of my life His goodness and saving work. I mean, after all, He had been a persecutor of the church. He had participated in the martyrdom of early believers. I am the least of all to have this privilege to talk about, to uh, help be a part of God's revelation of His unsearchable riches. Now, when we use the word riches, we just almost make that synonymous with money. But riches is a much more full and a much more broad word than a few bucks. Let me talk about it in this kind of way. Some of you may have heard the story. It's it's four years ago this past Friday that uh, Marvin Schur was found in his home in a small town of Michigan dead. Now, Marvin Schur was a World War II veteran. He had uh, come out of the war and made a decent living. And uh, he was connected with his neighbors. His neighbors knew who he was. And they got into the throes of winter. And there was a lot of cold and snow. And, you know, neighbors don't always see each other with a lot of frequency and all of that. Some of the neighbors began to get concerned because they hadn't seen Marvin around. And so they went to check on him. And his windows were frosted over on the inside. They knew something was wrong. They uh, broke into his house and they found his oven door open where apparently he'd been trying to get some heat in some kind of way. And there he was lying on the kitchen floor, dead, frozen to death. And it seems that uh, he had not paid his electric bill, his power bill, for some four months and been sent several notices about that. And so they put his uh, power on a timer. After a certain few more days, it was going to go away. And after a certain few more days, it went away. And after a few days of no power, no heat, extreme cold, he froze to death. Now, that sounds tragic, and it is, but that's not even the most tragic part of it. Marvin Schur was a wealthy man. He had liquid cash in his bank account of $600,000. He had thousands of dollars in cash lying around the house. He could well afford his utility bill and whatever other expenses that were a part of his life. But he had come to a point in his life where he had begun to live miserly. And he would not spend money 
on necessities, on the things that you have to spend money on. Now, I could tell you a dozen stories that I read about this kind of scenario over the past week, but let me just go right to the biggest one. And that was about 100 years ago with a woman by the name of Hetty Green. Hetty Green, at the, uh, the turn of the 20th century, was uh, one of the wealthiest people in America. And when she died in 1913, she was worth $100 million. That's a lot of money today. A hundred years ago, that's just stinking wealthy, all right? And uh, she had made that money. She had uh, come from a family of wealth, and uh, she had had an inheritance of a million dollars herself. So she started with money, but she became a shrewd investor. In fact, a lot of people in that industry study her life and her investing methodology because of the success that she had through at least three pretty horrific economic times. But be that as it may, she also became very miserly. So much so that near the end of her life, she would not even heat the water with which she would make her oatmeal. She'd make oatmeal with cold water because she didn't want to spend the money that it would take to heat the water. She had a nephew who badly injured his leg and needed medical attention, and she spent so much time looking for a free clinic to tend to him, he ended up having to have his leg amputated. This is how miserly she was. I could go on and on, but the point of, of uh, Hetty Green and Marvin Schur is this. Something broke within them so that they had a skewed view about money, about wealth, about being able to release it. There was a fear factor there. Uh, they just thought that they had to keep all they could get because who knows when I won't have it, that kind of thing. And that is illustrative. That is illustrative of so many who say they know Jesus and have the unsearchable riches of God and all His glory at their disposal, but they live like paupers. They live like God doesn't know what's going on. God can't handle what's going on in my life. He doesn't have enough power. He doesn't have enough resource. He doesn't have enough grace or whatever to attend to what's going on in my life. And, and, they, and we live this kind of pauper existence when we are surrounded and inundated with the unsearchable riches of God. And let me talk about why that's so. But when it comes to the greens and the sures who have something broken and how that illustrates something that's broken within us, it makes me think about the old chorus that uh, was from a few years back, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Remember that old song? And, of course, somebody would say, Jesus, what's the question if he's the answer? And, of course, uh, one of the key questions is what does a meaningful life look like? What does a meaningful life look like? Does it look like uh, the envied celebrity lives? The rich and famous? I think you know in your heart of hearts it doesn't look like that. Now the best glimpse that we have of what a full and meaningful life looks like is Jesus Himself. 
He lived the life that God intended all humans to be able to live. Fully connected with the Father. Fully engaged with his own personal identity and sense of purpose in this world. Full capacity to be able to love and be loved. Capacity to give and forgive. Capacity to persevere. Keep on keeping on with right and righteousness. That's part of what a full and meaningful life looks like. And to the question then, how does someone get that life? Jesus is the answer. And this is what Paul's trying to get at in Ephesians. When you place your trust, when you bet your life on Jesus, that He's right. He's right about life. He's right about death. He's right about everything between life and death. And I will do life His way. I will surrender to His purposes. I will be His man. I will be His woman. I will allow Him to do whatever transforming thing He wants to do in my life. I'll cooperate with that. I'll work it out as He works it in me. My friend, you find yourself living a full and meaningful life. The Gospel of John puts it to us this way in chapter 1, verse 12. To all who receive Jesus, to all who believe in His name, He gives the right to become sons and daughters of God. Now, to believe and receive means that I bet my life on Him. I appropriate Him fully into my life. He courses throughout who I am. He changes the way I think. He changes the way that I feel. He changes the way I look at everything. You go, that's pretty consumed. It's consumption. It's being consumed with Jesus. Well, to finish what Paul was getting at in Ephesians 3 when he talks about moving from fearful to fearless, he said all of this work that he's doing in saving Jew, saving Gentile, allowing my life to have a part in that, gracing us so that we can be in on this movement that he's doing, all of that results in his manifold wisdom being seen. There you go, manifold wisdom. What's that? Oh my goodness. The manifold wisdom. Manifold is a word that's borrowed from horticulture and it, it refers to the the multiplicity of colors of all the flowers or of a pattern that has all these brilliant different colors, all these features to it. So that when you look at it, you go, oh, that, that's gorgeous. That's beautiful. And, and, and God says, that's the way I'm at work in a believer so that when you see my purposes coursing through your life and when you are fully living in your identity as my son or as my daughter, people can begin to behold my manifold wisdom. How great and creative I am to do this kind of work in you. When, when you are living the Jesus life, people will look at that and go, there must be a God. There is something going on with that whole God connection in that person's life. He says it will be so impressive 
that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places will be moved by your witness, by your example. Now, he wasn't even here talking so much about how it would be oppressive to your peers. It does do that from time to time. But he said, this is how I make the mark in heaven. Between the spirits that are good and the spirits that are evil, when they see a life that is committed to me and living in concert and in harmony with me, all of the invisible world takes note. There goes one of God's men. There goes one of God's women. There goes a son or a daughter. Now, Paul says, all this mystery, all this wondrous, manifold stuff that he's doing that I don't deserve to be a part of, he's doing through the church, through his people, through us. That get it and walk with him and live with him in these kinds of ways. All of which results and are being able to have a boldness and an access to the eternal Creator God. You, you just got to let that sink in for a minute. Yes. As some of you know, um, you, you knew I would mention it. I was able to bring my grandson to church today. Now, this little guy who's about 21 months old can put his arms up like that and I'll swoop him up in a second, nanosecond. I'll be glad to do that. And when I'm holding him in my arms, he may very well, because he's done it a few times, grab my face and mush it and mash it and do all kinds of stuff to it. There is not another person in this room that can do that. <laughs> Don't even try. <laughs> He's got access, boldness, audacity to be able to come to me in that kind of way because he's my beloved. And that's what you have with your heavenly father. You have a bold access to him that's just remarkable. Now, we've talked about this story in here a few times, and I'm just going to cover it real quickly. But it's a Memphis story, and I love it. So, a lot of you are familiar with the movie The Blind Side. You know it's about this uh, kid by the name of Michael Orr who grew up in the third poorest zip code in America. His dad was killed when he was young through a crime-related thing. His mother was a dope addict and totally checked out of his life. So, he basically grew up parentless and homeless and just kind of surfing from one sofa to another and people would befriend him, you know, to one level or another. And he carried the world's goods, just a few articles of clothing, in a garbage bag. And that's how he got around. When uh, Sean and Leanne Tui, a uh, wealthy white family on the east side of Memphis, came across this kid one day. Now, this kid is 6'5 and 350 pounds at age 15. So he's a giant of a guy, but he is scared to death. He's full of fear. He, he cowers in life. He basically tries to live like he's invisible so that nobody will take notice of him and reject him or tell him, you've been on my couch long enough or you can't have this or you can't. So he basically lives this kind of invisible life. And Sean and Leanne see this kid. Uh, God puts something in their heart for this kid. They end up adopting this kid. And they already have a son and a daughter. 
and their son and daughter go to a very exclusive private school in Memphis, and they're adopting this big 6'5", 350-pound guy. He's one of theirs. He's going to go to the private school, too. And, of course, he's terribly behind the school. He hasn't gone to school for years. He, there's so much. So they bring in the tutors and all the kinds of help that they can get him. And come to find out, the kid who's not done a whole lot uh, with anything is pretty athletically inclined. He goes out on the football field. He makes the team. And in less than a year, he's considered the most desired football prospect for college in the country. And you know the rest of the story. He ends up going to Ole Miss. And then uh, right now he plays with the Baltimore Ravens. And he's got family with these people. And he's gone through a transformation because of their love and their embrace on him. So let me just say this one quick thing. Part of the Tui's wealth is related to their owning, uh, I think, about 30 Taco Bells across Memphis. And so they told Michael, who's a big, hungry guy, Anytime you're hungry, son, just uh, go to one of the Taco Bells and have whatever you want to eat. You can imagine. <laughs> he goes to a Taco Bell one day, and he tells them, I'm Sean and Leanne Tui's son, and I want a free meal. <laughs> and of course, if they know who the Tui's are, you know, this kind of petite white family, and here's this big black guy, they're like, What? And so on one occasion, Leanne gets a telephone call from a Taco Bell, and she says, uh, I'm so sorry to bother you today, but there is a really large black guy here who says he's your son, and he wants to be able to eat free. And she says, is his name Michael? Uh, well, yeah, it is. Well, that's my son. Give him whatever he wants. Do you see what I'm talking about? A guy who goes from wanting to be invisible, don't let anybody pay any attention to me because I don't want something else taken away from me. To a guy who will walk in and say, I am the son of the owner of this place. What's your identity? Who are you? And where are you headed? To wrap it up, the last thing Paul said that we read was to these Ephesians, hey, listen, what's happening to me, I'm in prison, I'm confined, I've got an uncertain future, don't let that discourage you. This is to your glory. Now, what in the world does that mean? Paul said, the fact that I'm going through what I'm going through, that I'm suffering what I'm suffering, that I'm in this prison situation that I'm in, simply takes a yellow highlighter and highlights the fact of how much you matter to God that He would allow me to go through what I'm going through for your sake. He said, this is the point of your glory. This is a point of God saying, hey, here's how much you matter to me. I'm going to let Paul go through this for you. Now, don't miss the application to that. God cares so much for some people that are around us that He will allow you to go through some really hard things for their sake. To show them how much they matter. And you can do that fearlessly because you know how much you matter. If the identity piece is being sunk into your heart. Well, 
Brenda Foltz, and I close with this story, uh, is kind of a timid gal and not very venturesome, but she has some friends who like to go rock climbing. And on one occasion, they invited her to go rock climbing. And she's like, are, are you crazy? I don't do rock climbing. Oh, we'll take care of you. We've got all the equipment. Come on, it's going to be a great day. It's going to be beautiful out there. We want you to be a part of it. You know, on and on they went. So she went. And so she's making her way up the face of this cliff, you know, and, and uh, she's just kind of nervous and all tense. But she's all, you know, hooked up to the other people and she's safe. And she gets up to this landing that's... Uh, you know, dozens of feet from below and dozens of feet from the top, so she's kind of right in the middle, and she's taking a little breather on this ledge, and somebody pops the cord to which she's tethered, and it just grazes her eye, and they knocked her contact out. And she needs her contacts. Anybody like that? And so now she, everything is just uh, so blurred, and she's panicking. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do without my contact? And so she's looking as best she can on this little ledge to see if it might have just fallen out right here. And she can't see it. And she's distressed. And so she's praying, Oh God, just help me. Help me not die. Help me get to the top. Help me be able to do all this without seeing and whatever. And so she makes her way to the top. And while she's up there, she's sitting there resting while the, the people that were coming behind her are also making their way to the top. And... There's this huge vista out there that she can, you know, tell that it's there. She just can't see it very clearly. And she's reminded of how big God is and how awesome God is and how beautiful God's creation is. And so she just whispers another prayer. She says, God, I know my life is in your hand. And I know that you can do all things. I want my contact. I can't see. And so the rest of her party gets there and they all make their way down and they hike back down to the beginning point. And when they get down to the beginning point, there's another group of friends not related to them who are all getting hooked up and harnessed and everything. And they're about to make the same climb. And uh, as uh, Brenda's party's coming by, getting ready to leave, and this other party's getting ready to ascend, one in the new party says to Brenda's party, did anybody lose a contact? And she's like, are you serious? I mean, how would you even think to say such a thing? But uh, she goes, yeah, I, I lost a contact. And she goes, well, I got it right here. And she's like, what? How in the world? And she goes, well, I mean, I just happened to see that there was this little ant crawling along, and it had the contact on its back. I mean, you can't miss noticing that. And so I thought, somebody lost their contact up there, and so I picked it up. <laughs> And, of course, Brenda is, is just taken with, how big is God? <laughs> that he can, out of billions of people, hear my little whimpering whine about my contact and just kind of deliver it on the back of an ant. <laughs> now, Brenda's dad is a cartoonist. And when he heard this story, he developed this little cartoon and put this caption with it, Lord, I don't know why you want me to carry this thing. I can't eat it. It's awfully heavy. But if this is what you want me to do, I'll carry it for you. <laughs> now, friends, there are circumstances going on in your life that are on your back, if you will. You know, why is this a part of my life? God's got you carrying something by His grace for His gospel to someone. God's going to use that circumstance. He's going to use that experience. He's going to use that thing that feels burdensome in the moment, troublesome, problematic.
friends, you, if you're in Christ, you can't lose. Now, your circumstances can suck. Okay? Don't misunderstand me. But you can't lose, ultimately. Because He'll use sucky circumstances for good, glorious purposes. I mean, if you get this, why in the world would you do life any other way? Now, if you don't get it, we're praying for you to get it. But if you get this, why would you do life any other way? Well, here's where we started. There's a Jesus-following movement that's going on all over this globe. Is that your life? Are you a part of that? Do you know who you are? Do you know where you're headed? If you want the Christ life, if you want in on the adventure, that can be fearsome at times, then will you believe I'm a sinner that needs saving. I believe Jesus is the Savior. Repent. I'll stop doing this whole life thing my way. I'll do it His way. Surrender. He's going to be boss. I'm going to follow His marching orders. It's no more me being in control of everything. Follow. I'll go where He goes. I'll do what He does. I will be about His agenda. Let me pray for you. Father, it's been a divine appointment for us to be here today. You have been at work in us in ways that drew us to this moment for good purposes, for saving purposes. I just pray for my friends right now that you would touch their heart and illuminate their mind that they would feel drawn to you and that they would say yes to your will and to your way to relationship with you. In Jesus' name.